So for I would say to young professionals, if you truly care about the world and the humans in it, energy and what it brings is the way to lift everyone up. another episode of the uh, Young Professionals and Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm here with one of our favorite guests, one of my favorite guests, and energy thought leaders of our time, uh, Scott Tinker. Scott, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, Mark. I'm glad to be Excellent. here. Excellent. Cool. Scott's with uh, Switch Energy Alliance, a nonprofit group that he'll talk lots about. Um, but before we get into that, Scott, I was hoping to kind of start at the beginning. How'd you get involved in the energy industry? Can you tell us a little about little bit about your education and uh, your career. Yeah, sure. Well, it's good to be here and certainly love the love working with young professionals. My son is with Hillcor and his wife's with Exxon. <laughs> I got another guy, son, who did a master's in film engineering and he's started his own company now and a couple other younger yahoos that didn't, you know, go into the interview business. <laughs> anyway, I was born into it. Dad was with Shell for 39 years and geologist and and so I tried to get out, but it was futile. Resistance was futile, as they say. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I was the same. Dad, Dad's a geologist, and I went to school to uh, study energy and not be in oil and gas, and I am in oil and gas now. So <laughs> I didn't even do that. I was like going to be a lawyer or some crazy thing. Luckily, <laughs> geology saved me. But you know, and yeah, I did, went to Trinity University, did my undergrad, and then worked a year or two, and went back and did a master's and worked some more years. And, there in Denver, actually, uh, for Marathon in the research lab on South Broadway, which has been leveled now and in some in the subdivision. But it was a wonderful place back in the 80s. And did my PhD along the way when I was working full time. It was kind of crazy, uh, candidly, Mark, you know, but a guy named Dave Budd at CU Boulder said, yeah, I'll take you. And he goes, but just don't have kids. Well, I had two kids along the way. And luckily, he had twins along the way. So he was he could understand we were kind of almost the same age and we were just relating to one another so yeah. education always did them i don't know i got a, ba- a bachelor's in business as well and a chunk of an mba just went to school a lot along the way figured it was a good thing to do so worked the independent in houston in the earliest 80s and, and then an independent mid-size kind of in denver for the mid 80s marathon till 2000 came down here to UG in January 2000, which is hard to believe, 22 years ago, to run the Bureau of Economic Geology, and they didn't have any qualified candidates, so they got stuck with me, and they couldn't get rid of me, so here I am, you know, 22 years later, and <laughs> been a great place to be. We have, we do energy and environmental and economic research all over the planet, got about 250 people here, really cool group, so. Okay, and that, is that UT in uh, Austin? Yep, UT Austin. So I'm a professor here. I've got a chair and, and then direct the bureau and have a bunch of other gigs I'm involved with, you know, just whatever. <laughs> you yeah. Add stuff and it's hard to subtract. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Bureau of Energy Economics. No, I, I didn't say that correctly. Bureau of Economic Geology. It's the okay. it's the oldest research unit at UT Austin. We were formed in 1909. Oh, wow. And it's the second largest. The largest is a military thing. So we're really effectively the largest. And we're the State Geological Survey of Texas. So I'm the state geologist of Texas. Every state oh, has. And uh, I wear that hat. Um, 
as well as so we have a strong kind of state component as well as a university component here at the bureau. Okay. A lot of Excellent. industry people actually, you know, very uh, interdisciplinary. Lots of engineers and scientists of all kinds and economists. Very interdisciplinary teams from all over the planet. People talk a lot about diversity, but mostly it's talk. <laughs> we, we actually do it. So I've got 25 nations on permanent staff, plus students and postdocs from all over the world. So it's very diverse. That can be quite powerful when when you're not, you know, but it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Culturally and educationally and economically, very different. You've got yeah. people in rooms working together who might not like each other back in their home countries. Right. And so we work it out. And it's it's uh, it's fun. Diversity is fun. It's powerful, but again, it's not without lots of challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, I've heard diversity in teams, and my personal experiences, it can be slower uh, at the onset and kind of challenging to figure out how to work with people initially. But the creativity that gets generated and the ultimate outcome is often better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're just blending different. Uh, experiences in life, life knowledge. And when that happens, if you really listen to one another and pick up on it, there's so much to learn, especially energy. We've got people here from all six continents, not Antarctica, but they've come out of energy poverty, some of them. They were living without electricity when they grew up. Wow. Different experiences. Yeah, it is. And that's very powerful. Yeah. Well, that's your day job. Uh, and we, we'd reached out to you guys, I think predominantly for uh, kind of the, some of the volunteer work that you're doing with uh, Switch. So hoping to kind of get an overview of Switch and chat a little bit about that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's my day job. <laughs> it keeps me pretty busy. I have a little LLC where I, I sit on boards and also speak to boards and and private company events and things like that. I do a lot of talking, as my daughter used to say when she was asked what her daddy does. He talks. So. She's 21 now, so <laughs> been talking a long time. And then Harry Lynch and I made a film called Switch, filmed in uh, nine and ten post production, and we released it in 2011. Went all over the world, filmed in 11 countries, and just trying to show energy. We're in its best light, all different kinds, but the pros and cons of it. Truly nonpartisan look at energy options. This is before we were really talking about transitions and net zero emissions and ESG and all sorts of other buzzwords. So it's still really relevant. I mean, I went went back and rewatched parts of it uh, preparing for this and it's still fantastic. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, we, it wasn't intended to get a lot of, uh, what do you want to say to go viral? (laughs) It was intended to, it was intended to be a virus forever, (laughs) different kind of viral because we filmed, we were learning as we filmed. We didn't pre-script it, Mark, and that's quite different from most documentary films. The filmmakers have something they want to tell you, and they go film enough to tell you some story, even if all the people they interview aren't saying that. Yeah, you know, yeah. tell you the story. We didn't do that. We filmed, and I mean, I know something about energy, so I kind of knew, and so does Harry, the filmmaker. But we and we were in post-production for over a year on that, doing test screenings and trying to figure out how to tell that story of energy. And it has stood the test of time. It's been in 50 countries and translated in gobs of languages, et cetera, and in schools. But some years went by after that, and Harry was making another series on mental health, uh, beautiful uh, mental health channel, and then some stuff on music. 
And I got back with them and said, you know, we kind of left out a decent chunk of the world because we filmed where there was energy. We need to go where there isn't much, which turns out is a lot of places. And we made our second film, Switch On. And then all of those have been taken into primers and 101s and short format and series and everything because we shot over a thousand hours for those two films in 16 countries. So Switch On came out in 2020, uh, Energy Poverty, but a hopeful film, you know, really about what can what people are doing and can do to get out of poverty, both economic and energy poverty. That's yeah. That was an interesting and more emotional, more human project. So we got a lot since then, but along the way, I said, well, I got to form a not-for-profit. We formed a 501c3 called the Switch Energy Alliance five years ago now and got some people and I raised the dough and give my time and money to it, you know, and <laughs> and we... Yeah. And we make energy educational stuff, mostly film-based, but we're in classrooms across the country, uh, high school classrooms with our Switch classroom for AP Environmental Sciences and really cool. Teachers are grabbing it up. It's all free. We're in museums now with an IMAX film, a five-minute feature, or five-minute inter-feature film, and for different exhibit halls called Energy Makes Our World. Really, really cool piece. And then... Or in companies, of course, they do a lot of watching and, and continuing ed and professional ed with our stuff. And we're on campuses. We've got a case competition that's global. And we had, gosh, over a thousand students from over 30 countries sign up this year to do a study on energy poverty. And they had a few weeks to tell us what they would do in a certain country to try to wow. lift energy poverty. Teams of four, nice prize money. The winning team got ten grand, <laughs> and nice. And we had others as well. So they had to pick one of three countries and go kind of nuts to bolts on how you would get energy, reliable, affordable energy in that country. So and it had to be realistic, Mark. It couldn't be pie in the sky stuff. You had to look at the resources they had, the government structure, the economy they had, educational levels, and and what they could afford. And really start to dive in. And as the students did that, they realized, well, dense energy matters. Um, you have to have systems in place to keep it reliable. Um, intermittent energy is great, but it's expensive because you have to back it up with all this other stuff that isn't used. Right? They learned a lot about the politics and about the economics and who will invest. So that was the project. And they made presentations to volunteer judges. We had over we had almost 200 volunteers like yourself to be mentors, one mentor per team, and then judges as they came through the different stages. So I'd love for the YPE group, if there anybody listening is interested in being a judge next year, it's a blast. You get a team assigned to you from somewhere in the world, and you work with them to get their case study together. It's really fulfilling. Oh, man. I bet, I bet we could partner with you on that. And I bet we could send that to the other uh, YPE chapters across the country. That'd be wonderful. I think it's such a great experience and you get to see because it's a study on energy poverty, uh, Mark, but some of these kids are living in energy poverty. So they literally couldn't finish because the power kept going off. <laughs> or in one case, bullets were coming through the windows because there was rioting in the streets. Wow. Uh, it, it's really emotional. And, and student, teams don't finish. A lot of teams don't finish. So one of the mentor roles is just to get them over the finish line. You know, um, it's really cool. So love yeah. contact me. 
Mary, we have a woman who's the head of our manager of education at Switch Energy Alliance, Mary Tibbetts, and she runs that program. So we're already starting to put it together for next year. We have interns, paid interns that work on it and things. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put some contact info in the show notes for our listeners. Sure. So, um, so you guys, that's that's a ton, right? A ton of educational uh, events and material, um, both through film and documentary and presentations and talks. And I mean, you're a busy guy, right? You, you give great presentations all over the country, which I really appreciate. And I think all of your content's fantastic. Um, what's kind of your guys' overall mission or goals? I mean, you, you set out and film switch without an agenda in mind, but, uh, I feel like switch energy Alliance now uh, being a nonprofit has some goals and, and objectives. What, what's your guys' purpose? Yeah. Well, our, our mission is to inspire an energy-educated future. We just feel that the, the educational, the energy IQ in the world and in the U.S. is pretty low. And it's not a criticism. It's an observation. The challenge being that most people think they know everything about energy. <laughs> and, and they just know that it's binary. There's clean energy and there's dirty energy and there's good energy and bad energy. And if you don't like the clean stuff, you're a denier. And let's move on, you know, and they don't really necessarily want to know anything else because the data and facts kind of perturb their beliefs (laughs) and what they've been raised with some of them. And so we're trying to inspire deeper thinking, critical thinking around energy, because it's it is a complicated subject social, legal, political systems, everybody doesn't have the same resources, blah, blah, blah. But it's solvable if you if you have all the information and begin to think about this critically. So our mission is to inspire that energy-educated future and have young professionals like yourselves solve it so you can take care of old guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and that's really it, it is I give my time and money and passion to that i could do i could do a lot of things but this is this is where i feel the world has to have affordable reliable energy or we will continue to grow the disparity between severe poverty and severe wealth and i've been in 60 countries mark i've been very lucky and i've seen both i've been in some of the most severe wealth you could ever imagine yeah. And some of the most severe poverty you could ever imagine. And I'm not talking about U.S. type poverty, which is bad. I'm talking about no limbs groveling in the dirt while people step over and on you poverty. I don't even notice you're there. OK, yeah. it's brutal. And and uh, there's not just a few people that live in energy poverty. It's it's over a billion without electricity at all. And another couple billion with unreliable energy. And another couple billion that are developing but not developed yet, you get towards 6 billion people out of the 7.7 on Earth today. That's the vast majority of folks that still are living in some level of energy poverty, and it affects us all. Quick editor's note here. Scott mentioned the 6 billion people in energy poverty. He later wanted to clarify that this breaks down to about 2 billion with little or no energy and $4 billion with energy that is not fully reliable. And then the remaining $1.5, $1.7 billion or so people on Earth do have secure, affordable, and reliable energy. Okay, back to the pod. Yeah, you can say, well, that's over there. Well, yeah, it is, but immigration and migration. 
uh, rights and freedom of women who are going for the water, cooking with wood, dying of in, inhaling particulates in their own homes, the, the vaccines and medicines that come with energy and refrigeration, ability to light homes and schools, uh, clean up your water, uh, or food, reliable food supplies. Or, it just touches everything. And, and we, are, we, don't, we don't know about it here. We don't yeah. understand it because we've never had to go through that. Even if you come from a relatively poor family, you probably had electricity in your home and a car. Most people here do. So we don't understand it and all of its impacts. And I tell you that once you do, it's powerful. And you start to say, look, we got to pull this up. Energy won't end poverty, but you can't end poverty without energy. It's a paradox, a dilemma. But until you start to understand that, then all these other binary conversations about good and bad can go on and continue unabated. We're going to help the poor people. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, they're going to hurt them. And they're telling us very clearly, we're not going to do that. We're trying to lift up out of poverty and approach anything like the Western Europe and the U.S. has. So this is an education platform that tries to bring that into the room through film. We're not we're truly nonpartisan. I get I laugh so hard when people say we're a nonpartisan group and you go to their website and it's so partisan. You know? <laughs> it's true. But yeah. but ours, you go to it and people go, we don't even know what your politics are. What, how do you vote? And this is a compliment <laughs> because we truly are showing the pros and cons of these different things. And they all have them. I mean, oil and gas is dirty. I mean, if you look at not just CO2, the use of the land and pipelines and trucks and trains and, and manufacturing and refining and combustion, it's a, it hurts the environment. Now, it's, it's done better in rich countries and poor countries. So I would rather have it being produced in wealthy countries because we regulate it and you clean it up. Absolutely. But the piece of the environment that benefits from oil and gas, and yes, I said that correctly, is a healthy economy. And so when I have this healthy economy, I can do remarkable things like clean it up. Yep. And, and when I don't have a healthy economy, look, those countries I've been in, without exception, the worst environments in the world are where it's poor. They simply can't afford the kinds of things we do to clean up our soil and our water and our local air and the land, as well as the emissions. Can't afford it. Not That's part kind of, of their, their opportunity cost, right? They, they don't have enough time in their lives. They're too busy making a livelihood for themselves and supporting themselves at a fundamental level. Um, that they don't have the time or resources and can't power, frankly, many of the machines that allow us to have more uh, stuff, better lives, uh, and, and make it easier for us to clean up the environment, right? Absolutely. And the corruption. Uh, yeah. The government systems tend to be autocratic when you're in poor nations because you can grab power and hold on to it. And when I talk about these things, particularly to young people from Africa, but not just parts of Latin America, parts of Asia, parts of the Middle East, they'll come up afterwards with tears in their eyes and they'll say, it would be remarkable to start to move these directions. But the corruption is so bad that we can't get any of the money to flow into the problem. It just scraped off. Right. Exposure through education. Now I, I get educated. Okay. Now I know what the world works like. 
Okay. Now I want to kind of pick my own leadership. <laughs> yeah. I want to have a voice in it. And that's what starts to happen. And that's why it's so intimidating for the autocrats because they'll talk like they want to help the people. But in the end, you look at actions, not words, and they're, they're suppressing, oppressing all the time. And, and that's where the power comes in. So for I would say to young professionals, if you truly care about the world and the humans in it, energy and what it brings is the way to lift everyone up. Hey, man, that's that's why I do what I do. Right. I mean, I tell people all the time that uh, my, my life goal and my purpose is uh, to produce energy for America and the world, because uh, I, I think I'm very aligned on that front. And, and many of my peers are that we we share the viewpoint that. You know, if we produce more energy, then our lives become better and the lives of our families, our peers, our colleagues, the country, the world, all all becomes better. So and I think, you know, what we're trying to do with this podcast and uh, just as kind of a movement overall is to motivate, motivate that dialogue in a positive direction to ensure that we build the best energy projects for humanity. Um, and that could be the best uh in, in an immediate vicinity, could be the best for an organization, could be the best for a state. But we, we, similar to you, want to make sure that people are educated in all the options. So that's yep. excellent. Yeah. Okay. So switch. I mean, I've I've consumed some of your guys' material. I think you've got a great kind of online platform. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and perhaps how you are getting in schools and how you're getting your content into the the hands of the public and people to use it? Yeah. I'll tell you what we're working on, but we need to keep doing it better. <laughs> so sure. starting K through 12, we formed something called Switch Classroom. It's a it's an in-house platform that we wrote. And then the content is built on our videos, working with high school teachers to develop the curriculum. Mostly for AP Environmental Sciences, which is a very popular high school class. 200,000 students a year take it in wow. the U.S. alone. Free. So we released it a year ago, August, with no marketing. And I think it has 3,500 teachers already using it and 20 or 30,000 students, but it, there's a long way to go. It's on a slow, steady rise. And then other educators are using it as well. It's beautiful. I mean, you can pick your little modules, you design your own thing, the questions are built in, the answers go to the teachers, the students see from a thousand hours of footage around the world, they see real things. You know, oh, that's what that looks like. And that's how that happens. And in expert interviews, I've interviewed over 75 people that I mean, top people in the world. Then we clip those in. So it's really cool. And we want to keep growing that. And again, your young pro network could help push that into schools. A lot of teachers don't even know about it. We go to education meetings and things and present it. But it's just networks that do that. For colleges, our films, the feature-length films, have been quite powerful. Switch and switch on. Energy makes our world. We also have this case competition that I've already talked about, and that's been neat at reaching into the rest of the world. Not that many universities in the U.S. and Western Europe signed up for it this year, interestingly enough. We had we had 200-and-something teams, 270, I think, but only maybe a dozen from the rich world. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's because they don't know about energy poverty i don't know why or they're just busy but love to get that spread further so every young professional probably has a college campus that they've graduated from or two and it'd be it'd be wonderful to be a mentor and get your college to host a team next year and do a study on energy poverty and get that in get that kind of 
ingrained in some of these campuses where we are a lot more privileged. And then on the the public front, we do have this museum film. It runs between IMAX features and five minutes long, plus in exhibit halls, Houston Museum of Natural Science and a bunch of other museums that are now opening are looking at it. It was Hollywood quality deal. We hired a big producer, bunch of money, magic. I have a one second cameo with the school <laughs> bus driver, you know, but things are disappearing in a cool. Was the, was the producer named Magic or was no. it just magical that uh, the work that they did? <laughs> it's, well, we have magic on screen. Uh, things disappear <laughs> and then not CGI. It's like shoot the scene and take one car out, shoot the scene, take a car. It's really cool. Yeah. But everything disappears from these kids' lives. They were actors. And and then we bring it back, not in just popping it up there, but through global supply chains that happen really quickly. No dialogue other than multilingual subtitles. And you see what it takes to get water to your home, what it takes to get food, what it takes to get electronics, what it takes to get your home. And each of these is saying energy makes our water in different languages. Energy makes our food. And yeah, energy makes our world. And then it loops. So you you walk out in five minutes realizing, whoa, I didn't really think about all that stuff that energy does. So that's been a good one in museums only at this point in time. We've got uh, a cool thing we've just done. We just recorded a PBS series. It's brand new. I filmed it uh, two months ago, 10 episodes. It's an interview format talk show where I'm the host and I've got two high level guests there really high production quality, four cameras, oh, yeah. three tights and a wide and sound and color correct and makeup, the whole scene. And we we don't agree on everything. You know, it's not like you're listening to MSNBC or Fox News and, you know, you either love it or you hate it. We're in there, the, like one episode is Ernie Moniz and Dan Jurgen. So yep. former Secretary of Energy, Pulitzer Prize winner, talking about geopolitics. And we're agreeing on a lot of things, but not on everything. And we have one on nuclear, natural gas, hydrogen. Yeah, Sh- Schellenberger you had for the nuclear one, right? Uh, we do. Yeah. 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 He was terrific. So uh, Steve Coonan and just a lot of really top folks. So that's in post-production now. It'll run on PBS in the spring. And we're excited. We're going to hope to keep that going and do another 10-episode series. So these are the kinds of things we're working on, different target groups, if you will, K-12, through campuses, public. Uh, the high-level viewer on TV, et cetera. And, we're, and then we're just getting started on professional education where we're going to develop some, not like the stuff that you'd rather, you know, slice your wrist and take to get your professional education. How do I drive a car at work or whatever? <laughs> really, I have to go through this, you know. <laughs> um, so we're trying to figure out a whole different style where you feel like you're walking into a museum almost and it only lasts 15 minutes. And you kind of want to do it. And by the time you're done, you're going to get switch certified as a base level education for a company. And there'll be some ESG stuff in there. So your corporate leaders might say, you mean I could check kind of part of an ESG box if everybody switch certified in this just by going through it. And it won't be that long, a couple hours. You could do it over the course of, you know, eight weeks, just doing maybe 20, 30 minutes a week or something like that. So we're working on that. We're developing that now, and and we'll see where it goes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. That'd be great. Yep. Well, in all of this education and inspiring education process, 
what's been the hardest message about energy to communicate with people? What seems to be the most habitually misunderstood? <laughs> that there's not clean and dirty energy. <laughs> yeah. They, they, what do you mean it's not clean and dirty? It will. There's and then and there's no renewable energy. That's been a tough one too. What do you mean by that? They're looking at the sun and seeing the wind blow. I said, well, yeah, but you have to collect it to put it into forms that are useful to us. And those collectors all come from the earth. We mine the stuff, we make them, and we dump them back in the earth, and they wear out, and we do it again, and that's not renewable. And luckily, I'm a geologist. I said, I don't mind mining. I'm fine with mining, but. <laughs> you think mining's green? And they kind of look at me like I have six heads or something. And, you know, how about manufacturing? And no. And how about landfill dumping? No. Well, why are electric vehicles clean? We mine for the batteries. We manufacture them in big chemical plants. We dump them back in the earth when they wear out. So, you know, this is a, this is one of the challenges is just people understanding what it takes to bring a molecule or an electron to you in a usable form. And that it isn't clean <laughs> and it's not renewable. But we can make them all better. But let's not pretend like some are good and some are bad. So that's the biggest challenge. Has that been one of the most impactful messages to tell? I mean, even though it's a big challenge, once once people get it, does that yes. help help influence them? Yes, it does. They go home depressed. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, wait a minute. I, Oh man, as an engineer, I go home empowered. Like, wait, you tell me I can make something better? That's, yeah, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> and you know what? That's what a lot of students and young professionals do. They're like, okay, I don't like this, but I want to get involved. How do I help? How do I get involved in this kind of thing? Because that sounds actually, if I'm really honest, more realistic than what I've been taught. And so, how do I get engaged with this? How do I learn enough to to have this happen? And, so we talk about the concepts of completely factual versus factually complete and how different they are. So I got some completely factual things. Here's one. Natural gas in February of, of 2020 in Texas during our big chill, natural gas fell more during the blackouts than any other source of energy. Completely factual. Okay. Well, the blackout started February 15th. And what did natural gas do for the six days before that? Oh, it doubled from everything it was expected to do from February 8th through 14th. So when it fell, it was still higher than it was ever expected to be. Ah, now we're getting more actually complete. Uh, okay. And I testified yeah. to the U.S. Senate earlier this year on climate, and we talked about actually complete and completely factual. And it starts to people, okay, so you can't just cherry pick the thing you want to tell from the, in that time window. you got to widen your aperture. Look at all the data. You might not like some of it. But you're going to solve it if you know a bit more about these things. And that's that's a big challenge. It's just getting us out of what we hear and like believing and stream to ourselves on our feeds every morning. And 2,000 people agree with us and we know we're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It feels like a lot of people. But then you remember there's 7.7 billion people in the world and you may be wrong. Yes. And, and there, you know, that's the same with back to our conversation about us in Western Europe. You know, when you're protesting these things, it's awesome. The ability to get together and communicate and globally protest in one day, if you're rich. But there's six yeah. billion people who don't have all those electronic social connections. 
and they're not protesting. They're trying to go to school, trying yeah. to stay in school. And, and so we got to get a little bit more uh, humility in all of our lives about our, what we have as entitled human beings because of all the hard work our parents and grandparents did and that we're trying to do. And most people don't have these things yet, and they that's not right. It's just not right. So that's been a big challenge is just getting our heads around what the world looks like and some of the challenges, but some of the opportunity space, too, and communicating about it. And there's a lot rolled up into all that energy stuff, you know. Well, tell me more. What does not renewable mean then? What are the options? And you start getting into real conversations. Right. Yeah. Well, Scott, I view you as an um, expert communicator. Uh, you know, I've seen, like I've said, consumed a lot of your materials, seen a lot of your uh, short films, your documentaries. Um, what messaging techniques have you seen to be most effective at educating people about energy and making them uh, empowered to uh, make the best decisions for themselves? Oh, and that might vary by, by demographic, right? I think it does. By demographic and geo geography, um, for me, video is powerful. It's it's something we can consume quickly, and it's animated, and color, and so you you can learn a lot more. A picture's worth a thousand words. A film's worth a million. Now the risk there is you can not always tell the truth with video. There are plenty of documentary films made that aren't very truthful, even though you're looking at real things, <laughs> the way they're put together aren't the actual story. So you have to be, you have to be very um, ethical about all of that when you put it together. But film is very powerful for communicating things and then supplementing that with information and data, you know, a simple graph or some kind of an animated graph that I do that a lot in my talks where I build a fairly complex figure, but we do it over several layers. So you kind of know what each one is doing. And it takes a long time to think about how would I consume this, this layer and that layer. And by the end, people say, oh, I completely understand that graph. And if I just flipped the slide up, it'd be clueless. It'd take me the whole talk to explain that graph. Yeah. But if we build it carefully and not over animating it, but really show the relationships and why they matter, circle things and highlight things and take some things away to show the key parts, et cetera. Very powerful communicating. Uh, I spend a lot of time in that world. And then, of course, the written word, it lasts a long time. If you can take the time to write an op-ed or, or a story or a book or an article, um, maybe some piece of legislation or you know, something that you've written, it's very powerful. I would encourage us all to get out there and do it. I think the the scout troops and the and the schools and your civic groups, uh, church groups, everybody is hungry for humans again post COVID and some yeah. human interaction. And it when you go into a group of kids, and I talk, I speak to classrooms either online or in person, 15 kids, you know, people say, well, how do you take the time to do that? That's the most important thing. It's so powerful, Mark, because they're there and they're, you got a human in front of them, you're showing some stuff and they just, they just learn that way. And, and we all need to take 
time to do that. Uh, and, yeah. and, and part of that educational solution, because I promise you there's other people in those classrooms and they may be sharing a message that is just completely factual, but not factually complete. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get to how folks might be able to be involved but before uh, uh, we do. I'd like to ask just a few more questions. Um, something that we ask a lot of our guests is what's uh, what's one thing about energy that scares you or frightens you? Hmm. Well, not having any. Yeah. <laughs> the lights going out, the heat going on. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, we think, oh, yeah, right. No. Right. We had 300 people die in Texas in in six days. Because we don't have a clue what to do when the heat's not there and the and the power's not on. We've gone beyond that. Other countries would have done fine because they're prepared for it. Yeah. Not having any, and I think not having any across the globe is the scariest thing. Affordable, reliable energy because it just, again, it creates conflict. It doesn't have to be that way. We filmed in Nepal for clean cooking in our film switch on Sana Kanchi and her family. And then I went to the CD Memorial Hospital afterwards and visited mothers there with cancer and cataracts and kids with pneumonia dying. And it was it was brutal. Um, but this is. This is two to three billion people today in the world still cooking indoors with biomass of various kinds, wood, dung, coal, hay, and then three million dying from breathing particulate matter. Three million. That's how many years. Right. Per year. And that's yeah. how many killed COVID, COVID killed in 2020. I mean, we shut down the world's economy for that. Yeah. Every single year. And so that scares me is this thought that in our world today is such disparity with energy and then the associated economic poverty. So I would think the scariest part of that is is telling people they can't have it. They can't build pipelines. They can't drill wells. They can't dig coal mines. They can't put in nuclear reactors. All you can do is put up wind turbines and solar panels. Well, I love wind and solar. They're good for certain things. We have a ton of wind in Texas, a lot of wind, and it's good for what it does, but it's not the only answer. It's yeah. not dense. And so you have to have, that's a terrifying thought to me is telling so much of the world you can't have these forms of energy. We won't invest in it. You can't develop it. It's just, it's ludicrous. Okay, and it's not going to happen. They're going to people are going to say, forget it. We're going to get yeah. it. And like, stop me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And they aren't going to do it as well as if we had invested in them. Right. And help them build the systems and structures to do it better than we did. Right. We learned some things over this last century. Let's let's deploy those cool learnings in the rest of the world. Still, instead of saying you can't do it. And I know people, a lot of people passionate about climate are going to hear me and say, well, here's a climate denier. He doesn't understand that we're going to warm the world two degrees if we keep burning fossil fuels. And I answer that by saying, actually, the, the big levers to reduce CO2 emissions are not just solar and wind. The big ones are nuclear, replacing coal with gas, capturing carbon from all sorts of different stacks, um, hydrogen, geothermal, subsurface resources. These are the big levers to address emissions transition quickly not it's not an energy transition it's an emissions yeah. transition right. we got to focus on those emissions and then do real things different parts of the world and that's that's scary to me when i think about 
a certain class of people who already have everything trying to create edicts. <laughs> sure. Those who don't, well, that's not going to happen and I, you're going to get a lot of strife. I, I appreciate the order in which you listed the uh, uh, emission reduction technologies or, you know, you can say energy transition technologies because in my mind, it's the most valuable to our biggest impact ones to lowest impact ones. I don't know if you did that consciously or if that was just uh, uh, what came to mind first. But. <laughs> it's conscious because that's the order in which they'll have an impact. I left one out, though, that's pretty high level, and that's efficiency. We yeah. can do a lot more with less energy, and I know there's a rebound effect, and I understand all of that, but we can still do as much as we do and consume less in the in the developed world. We've got to get there and then translate that across. And, of course, solar and wind we've talked about. That's a, that's one of the levers, but it's it has its challenges of intermittency, and, and, and that is not trivial. So many people are trying to say, well, we can just address that with things. No, it's it's a brutal challenge. You have to have yeah. so much redundant stuff just on call, and that stuff is very expensive and also impacts the environment. So it's not uh, that's not a clear thing. But those are the big levers, and, and it's an emissions transition, not an energy transition. I know the, right. the dialogue is energy transition. We've been in one of those for since we left caves and quit yep. cooking with wood in our cave. We've been in an energy transition away from carbon, but but there's nothing special about what the, this component of it other than we need to continue it and do things intelligently to address emissions. Couldn't agree more. What advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? I would say that your passions matter. And and when you find that passion, do it. Be proud of it. And don't apologize for it. Do it better than anything, anyone in the world. Be passionate and go after that. And if you do that, and be willing to transition as your career goes on, we all do, I think you'll be very fulfilled in your lives. And and if that passion is around energy and its various challenges, it might be technology to do certain things. It might be exploring for energy in certain ways. It might be trans, uh, moving energy from one place to another. Um, it might be converting energy from one form to another. It might, be, it might be helping people understand where their energy comes from and getting access to energy, law, writing laws around it or policy around it. Uh, looking at investing in it, which is a huge another sector we haven't really talked about. Whatever it is, if you're in the energy space, do it really well. And then recognize that we're very lucky. If, if you're listening from the United States and Western Europe, you're very lucky. If you're listening from other parts of the world, you're probably saying, you're damn right you're lucky, you know, because we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have as much of that. Yeah. And we want some. So that's my advice is to follow your passions and then be humble in what we have and what we understand. Humility is hard for all of us. Um, I seek it all the time, <laughs> uh, but we just don't know everything and we never will. So you have to understand what you know, be honest about that and translate it into doing good things and be able to adapt and change and grow and improve as you learn more. I think that's the greatest challenge for the poor politicians is they go do something 
and then that there's that post in the ground and they're not allowed to change your minds because now they're a flip-flopper or something and with knowledge they might say I, I thought that then but i don't think that now i've i've evolved i've learned i've grown but you're not allowed to do that and we've got to allow them to do that you right. know that's called growth and and i think those are they're big challenges for all of us in that space the other advice i would give to people particularly in the oil and gas sector is is don't apologize you know i'm sure you feel a little attacked When's the last time you went online and screamed, I'm in the oil and gas industry and I'm proud of it. And all your friends say, you know, what? And they attack you. But but don't apologize for that. It, but don't be you know arrogant either. Just say, look, I'm passionate, like you introduced yourself, Mark, about bringing energy to the world and lifting the world from poverty. That's what I do. Uh, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they might say, well. Well, I protest you. Oh, good. Well, okay. Um, there's something for that too, but maybe you could kind of come over here and and let's work on something yeah. positive together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that. That is a counterpoint I give often. Is uh, well, what what are you doing to uh, affect the energy transition or the emissions transi- transition? Right. Like, and there there are many people that are actively working in the industry now. Um, yeah, yeah. This could be good viewpoint. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm hesitant to ask this question because I think you answered a lot of it. Um, but I mean, if we had, if you had infinite power and money, uh, and had to prescribe an optimal solution, which it sounds like that that's not what you guys are trying to set out to do. You're trying to educate and inform the public, um, to make the best decision, uh, for themselves, um, which I, I find admirable. But I do value your perspective because, you know, like you said, you've put together over a thousand hours of uh, filmed interviews and you've thought about this for most of your career, if not all of your career. Right. And so you've, you're, you're very involved in it. I mean, if, if you could wave your wand or, or drive investment in a specific area, what would it be towards and um, what would the optimal energy mix like, look like in, I don't know, let's pick a date, 2050 or 2500 even. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think about. I'll just preface. I think about that often. Where it's like, well, you know, yeah. we're putting holes in the ground this year, but in 500 years, are we still going to be putting holes in the ground? Right, right. Well, the a couple things there. The 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 most optimal mix is the one that does the least damage to the environment, and so that's typically the densest forms. Dense energy, you get more bang for your buck. There's a reason we've gone away from hay and wood through coal, toward methane, toward oil, and then methane and uranium and thorium. There's a reason. It's denser energy, and you get more bang for the buck. So there's a lot less environmental impact from that energy source. So that is the fuels transition, if you will, that's happening and needs to continue to happen. There's a, a portfolio matters tremendously, like with anything. I mean... If you invest in a stock, you have one stock? <laughs> of course not. Sometimes. Yes, yeah, if I'm lucky. <laughs> my, my brother put everything in Doge in February this year. He did very well. <laughs> there you go. He's a gambler. But, you know, if you put everything into a certain form of energy and it doesn't do well, we're in trouble. And that, that mix varies depending on your resources. Everybody has different resources geopolitically and geographically, globally, geologically. You have different 
geopolitical systems and economic systems, educational levels, et cetera. Everybody's going through different kinds of transitions around the world. It's not a transition. And they're trying, the, the biggest transition is from poverty to prosperity. That is the only transition that matters from poverty to prosperity. Whatever it takes to do that with energy's role is what we need to invest in and allow people to do that. If they do that, they will take that prosperity and clean up the environment. It's a virtuous okay. cycle, yeah. but you got to get there first. And, and so the magic wand would say dense energy, a portfolio of energy, and transitions at the, in the ways and the pace that is good for that particular region. And we invest in those. I could sure do a lot with $100 trillion. And, you know, the latest number is 100 to 150 trillion to save the world from a degree and a half of warming. And by the way, there's not a CO2 knob and a temperature knob. The models don't show that. Nobody shows that. The models are got a big spread in them and they're damn good models. It's just a bloody hard problem. Yeah. So uh, with that spread and future temperature scenarios, that's a lot of money. Some should be invested there, but boy, could I do a lot of good in energy and economies investing in people to invest in themselves, to to grow their their markets in ways that are proportional and and in kind of in perspective to what they are, their culture. Yeah, not everybody wants the same thing. Their cultures don't even want the same thing. So what I have here in Texas may be different from what you want in Oregon, and that's all in the United States, because somebody in Nepal is really different from somebody in, you know, Russia. Yeah. <laughs> and that's different from somebody in Chile. So so that that recognition that there's going to be a lot of things going on and we can't wave a magic wand. We can't just say, make it so, because none of us are smart enough to do that. Right. Every time governments try, they fail. They pick winners. Those winners fail every single time. And so instead, you invest in parameters around which we want to see success. Affordable, reliable energy, lower environmental impact. That's it. That's the dual challenge. Energy and the environment. And the environment is land, air, water, and climate, emissions, atmosphere, energy, affordable, liable, available, you know, energy, and the economy. It's going to vary, but that's my magic wand is to invest those dollars so that people can then do what makes sense to them and it will be lasting. Okay. Awesome. I love that answer. So we'll, uh, we'll close out by asking what, what can people do to get involved with Switch? Leave us on a positive note, uh, which you're great at. You're very optimistic. I, I, lo I love your, your messaging. And if people want to get involved and, and help you guys, well, what can they do? Yeah. You know, a million dollars a year, just send a check. It'd be perfect. Uh, perfect. <laughs> Easy. Yeah, Me easy. too. Op open invite if anyone wants to do that for me, Mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I raise all the money for it. We, we don't. We don't get checks the size that some folks like Jeff Bezos write to certain groups, I'll tell you that, out of his $9 billion fund. But, no, look, you can, you can get involved as a mentor with case competitions. You can get involved speaking in different local groups, and we have materials to help you do that. You can get involved judging uh, some of our events. There are, there are uh, 
ways we can get involved financially too, you know, to get out there and networks and help attract some of that funding, uh, get yourself educated, promote some of the things that we do in your offices and in your companies so that everybody's raising their IQ. It, it's that, that, that multiplier effect of networks is so vital. So basically what I'm saying is get involved. Don't think that somebody else is going to do it because we're not. I'm 62 years old. I'm wearing out. <laughs> I'm creating all this great stuff. You know, Harry and I, the whole team, yeah. I say, I mean, that's what Switch is doing, not I. And, yeah. and use it. You know, get out there. And well, I've got lots of folks that I know now that are giving lectures or doing podcasts like you. I did another one with a, a younger professional from Oklahoma recently. And just getting involved. Have the courage to start spreading this word. And it's going to take some courage. Because your some of your best friends are not going to like it. It's not going to follow the narrative that's been so prominently promoted in the last decade or so. Yeah. But that's okay. You know, it's that civil dialogue that's so powerful. Take some courage. But you got you got some nice data sitting behind you, <laughs> and and a few good facts. So it's a it's a nice dialogue. Be be humble in the dialogue because not everybody knows everything. I'd say, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. We'll, we'll figure out things to do. Well, the other big thing I would say, Mark, is just keep building these networks. Keep building this young professional network. If I can help you in any way to do that, we will, because that's how it all is going to happen. When, when the young pros become this big global entity with an overwhelming amount of knowledge and information and, and science and engineering and economics and, and passion. Right. Because yeah. we are emotive creatures. We run on emotions. Sure. We don't want to be confused with facts and data most of the time. I feel this, that therefore it is. <laughs> and so it takes some thought in how to go about doing it. But I, I know that the, the things you're doing will really have a big impact on that. So thanks for what you do. Excellent. Scott, really appreciate that. I think that's a, that's a fantastic spot to leave it. And hopefully we can have you back on sometime soon. Happy to do it. Keep up the good work. Thanks, guys.